Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I love my fans, a.k.a. the hen house. Monday, which means it's time for TF3. It's good to have you guys. A great weekend of football. We had to wait for Arsenal to finish their uh, incredible result against Middlesbrough. Uh, wow, am I right? Uh, joining me on the podcast, Dave. Hello, hello, hello. Statman, you've just finished another podcast with the other guy we've got on, Nico. Mm. Crack well, how are you? Good. It was a crack. What, what did you guys discuss today? What if people want to go hear uh, Dave talks, the daily uh, statisticians football podcast? What, what would they hear? Yeah, the the Start Monday football podcast was uh, Nico joining. We just spoke about a bit about the top race for the the championship, the Premier League title. But we also moved on to Italy. We talked about AC Milan, Inter Milan. We finished off, of course, with the Champions League. So. Lots of fun things to go over if you you know if you've got some time spare, twenty minutes a day, go and check that stuff out. Make sure you, you review it as well. Important. Drop a review. Something funny. Make me laugh. Make me enjoy my day. That's it, Lawrence. Make me enjoy my day. <laughs> okay. Um must have missed that invite. Chris, uh elsewhere, you and I have been watching championship football. We have, yeah, it's um business end, to use a term i.e. relegation promotion it's all up there now everything for grabs get it all uh, the latest news on the hen house um anyway uh, let's get down to the result which was tonight uh, arsenal got the win in the end against it seems now relegation bound middlesbrough uh let's start with arsenal on this one uh dave in the end that three at the back idea that uh arsene wenger came up with worked out quite well uh, Rob holding on one side of that and Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain at right back. Right wing I think back. It was a flu- yeah, it was a fluid system. I think it kind of, you know, did break back to a, a 4-2-3-1 as well as this 3-4-2-1 that Chelsea have been playing all season. On the flip side of that, we've seen how, you know, teams can nullify Chelsea. But it, what I liked was that he played Olivier Giroud it's, it's simple, but it's so effective. Olivier Giroud is so underrated in his goal scoring as an assisting as a striker in the Premier League in the last three seasons. He's really up there with the great guys. So it's it's one of these things where, you know, Wenger was playing Welbeck through the middle. He wasn't playing Sanchez through the middle, which was stupid. And he wasn't playing Giroud through the middle. But now he's brought Giroud back into the fold. Giroud's obviously, you know, he's contributing to the side, being a target man and, and so forth. And the two guys behind him scoring the goals, Mezit and, of course, Sanchez, grabbing two very important goals for Arsenal's chase for the top four and even more importantly in this one Aaron Ramsey 
in midfield days. I think it's it's one of those players that uh, it's so weird. You know, look at his performance at the European Championships. The best player, team of the European Championships, Aaron Ramsey. Fantastic performance in Wales is sort of three, um, you know, four, two, one. They were playing out there, similar to Arsenal played this evening. And again, he was so good, so energetic. And I feel that his drive has been what Arsenal have lacked in central midfield is someone to win the ball back, someone to pressurise the opposition with Zaka and Koscielny, no, Zaka and Cochrane, sorry, in central midfield. It's a bit flat. It's a bit boring. With Ramsey, you've got someone breaking from those lines, pressurising the ball, getting Arsenal further up the pitch. And I think he did that so well this evening, grabbed that crucial assist for the winner. So Ramsey, for me, a fantastic football and a fantastic asset for Arsenal. Arsenal fans maybe think a little bit different about him, which is the interesting part of, obviously, Aaron Ramsey. Was this partly because of uh, personnel, though, Nico? I mean, you, you know, really, they only had one trustable centre-back there who was Lauren Koscielny and then he was flanked by Holding and uh, Polista. Yeah, I think they can, those players, you know, in that formation and that system can do a job in, in what Arsenal tried to achieve in that match, which is break down a team with a low block. Um, like you mentioned, Oxlade-Chamberlain at, at right wing back. It's a it's a very attacking formation and one that looks to, to stretch those lines and, and create space as opposed to, to jam it through there. And although, you know, the first goal came through a brilliant Alexis Sanchez uh, free kick, it was uh, the second goal through Meza Ozil that allowed them to win the game. Why, why, um, play, why play three at the back against Middlesbrough? So it it, 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 it gives you uh, more options at the back in terms of playing out. And what essentially what that does is that it brings, uh, if there's a low block, if there's a, a lot of players behind the ball from a defensive aspect and you play the, the ball more at the back and you have more options at the back, those players have to come forward. There's more space in between the lines. There's more space for your better attacking players to operate in those areas. Um, and thus you have a, a better chance of getting shots on target. And that's essentially the, the basic concept as to why uh, a three at the back would um, would be, you know, proved to be a, a, a positive thing when playing against uh, teams that are going to pack it in. Chris, a little bit about Middlesbrough uh, before we move on, uh, or at least back to Arsenal. Um, Middlesbrough got rid of Karanka and obviously mm-hmm. brought a lot of people forward from the backroom staff. Karanka um, saw quite a few, st- few of his stuff leaving. I think we saw Woodgate come in um, and we also saw uh, a, one of the backroom staff promoted from the youth system. Do you think enough change at Middlesbrough um, in order for there to be a fight back from relegation or or were we to expect them to be six points off? No, I don't think there's been enough change. I I think realistically the playing staff is the biggest issue. Karanka wasn't ideal and I think it it became a bad fit because he's, to me, I think he can be quite impulsive, Karanka. And that group... I don't think was as good as he wanted them to be. I, th- I think there is this element, and it, it happens to a few coaches that come from top clubs. Roy Keane's a good example. I think they just get frustrated with the lack of ability compared to what they're used to playing with. And it, the the replacement, Steve Agnew, who's done a very admirable job, but I look at that team, and, and I always think you have to judge the spine of a promoted side because that will tell you realistically where the, the frailties are. And I think there's a lack of creativity. Gaston Ramirez is too inconsistent to be deemed anything useful. Grant Ledbetter is serviceable. So is Adam Clayton. Same with Forshaw. At the back, I think Gibson's a good defender. And, you know, Guzan or Valdez, whichever one, are serviceable keepers. But there's no one there that I think 
any team above them would currently want to take for their own team and that's quite a, a damning indictment mm, yeah very good point um it, it does seem like they're a bit of a bit part team doesn't it i mean if you look at that back line chris is Ayala there who's a liverpool a liverpool academy player or someone who's bought by benitez sort of come through and be uh, completed by that team um you know you see fabio in there as well um is it really any surprise at this point that they... I mean, it's a bit of a weird one because you would have hoped they could have attracted more talent. And at the beginning of the season, you were hoping someone like Negredo could lead the line better than he has, despite the goals tonight, obviously. Yeah, Steve Gibson has put a lot of money into that club. He's invested a lot. It's not a rich area in Middlesbrough, actually. It's, it's probably, I would argue, the poorest of the Premier League clubs from a, a socioeconomic standpoint. And <clears throat> I, th- I think the thing is, it's so easy to just say invest but you've got to do it intelligently. That's that's the difficulty. And and I think picking up guys like Adama Traore on paper, they look very shrewd deals because Traore can carry the ball very well. He's arguably one of the fastest in the league, but his end product is the problem. I think that's the issue is, aside from a few, <clears throat> and Gibson jumped into my head when I was thinking this, it, it is a little bit island of, of misfit toys. You've got the likes of Rudy Gestead, Stuart Downing, Players that either have already shown that they're really not good enough for the top flight or players who are on the the downward trajectory of their careers. And I think it's a shame because Middlesbrough have been in the second tier for, I think, seven, eight years, I think, before they came up. So a good good period. I know they went down with Newcastle in 08 or 09. So they've been there for a while. And I am a little bit disappointed not to see them attack it a bit more. But I think when you look... From a, a macro perspective, it's it's easy to see the warning. <coughs> excuse me, the warning signs there, because uh, Karanku walked out in the midst of their promotion campaign when they went to Charlton. He kind of just stormed off and disappeared, but then came back and and everything was fine in inverted commas. So it's it is for me when it when we talk about promoted teams, it is so much about momentum as well, and and how much of a, a mentality as a team in terms of winning and how many of your players are serviceable you come up with because there are teams who make minimal changes and, and do absolutely fine. I look at the Newcastle team that came up last time. I think Burnley didn't make a, a huge amount of changes when they came up, possibly even Leicester. I think they only picked up really Kante um, and we, we saw the influence he had. So it, it's not, it's not a necessity that you have wholesale change. Um, but I think you have to use the championship season as a litmus test and say, OK, well, can this person come up with us and stay with us or do we need to to improve? As someone who's recently completed a uh, Conte doc, I heard a lot about Allegri and the successor uh, that he was to uh, Antonio Conte. And we'll get on to Conte and his uh, failings this weekend in just a second or maybe the, the triumph of Mourinho. Um, but what what is interesting, and maybe you're fit to answer this one uh, quite well at this point, Nico is a lot of people are putting Allegri forward as a great candidate to succeed from Arsene Wenger and it got me thinking about what the or the way that people see Wenger at the moment um, and maybe some of the disrespect that's taken away from the analysis of Wenger and his game management is quite an interesting one and it got me thinking about the game management of Allegri and a lot of people at Juventus seem to very well understand that Allegri is a good game manager He's someone who tells the players to slow down, have patience, not worry. And the fans buy into that. They don't get onto the players' backs 
for uh, you know for the, for the wrong reasons. And I sort of see Wenger in a similar way. Does it worry you a little bit that people are sort of looking so for- far forward ahead to Allegri when actually what they have is already someone who seems quite good at management of a game? There are certain similarities, like you mentioned, with the game management between Allegri and Arsene Wenger. But I think, you know, like you mentioned, the fans not getting on the back of the players as easily, you know, that become that comes with the fact that, you know, Conte had serial success with Juventus. Allegri has had serial success with Juventus. So it's not the, the craziest thing in the world for Allegri to ask for that patience when he's delivered upon it as you know, for Arsene Wenger, he hasn't necessarily done so. But in terms of game game management, there are some parallels. But at the same time, I think Allegri is much better at adapting and sort of modernizing his tactics and those things that make him a great manager um, and, and making those things, you know, better for or relevant to his game management in a sense um, than Arsene Wenger is at the current moment. Because I think where, you know, you, you and, and Dave and I have spoken about Juventus 2-0 uh, winning, you know, winning a game in the league this season is a strangulation uh, of the game, and and we saw that against Barcelona. Arsene Wenger doesn't have that variation within his tactics to do the same thing. He presses at, at different parts of the game, and it's all very measured. He sits back and he uses possession in, in clever ways that doesn't seem to be consistent. With Arsene Wenger, you know, he doesn't just get results against certain amount of certain type of teams. He gets results pretty much against everyone, and that's not only because of his tactics, that's not, not only because of his game management, but that's because of almost a mastery of, of what is game state and probably one of the most important things. And I think that's what separates him from not just Arsene Wenger, but a, a multitude of managers in Europe this season. Arsenal still find themselves off the top four, but uh, still very much in contention. Chris? Of course they're in contention. Um <clears throat> I think the con- the concern I had with them tonight was, yes, they they won the game. I still didn't see a consistency and a control, whether that be physically through through strength and and winning tackles or just again having control by holding the ball. That's the problem with this Arsenal team. In a in a number of ways, I don't really know how they play, and I think I look at Wenger at his his peak. And I see a coach who had a very clearly defined style that you could articulate very simply. I'm not sure that that's, that's true to this day. And, and that's, for me, a, a problem that they need to work on because you look at a lot of the, the other teams fighting for that spot and you can clearly define how they play and you can, can very much sense the strength in them. Whereas I can't really do that with, with Arsenal. It's... It's more defined by individuals. It's Alexis, it's Ozil when he feels like it. Those are the, the players that define them, but it's not necessarily the traits. Interesting. Um, yeah, I guess we'll see soon. Some A lot of people praising Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain on uh, Twitter tonight for some post-match comments that he made, basically showing that he understands the situation he's in uh, and that he hasn't necessarily always done what's best for Arsenal. Uh, but now he is apparently about playing at right wing back. Fale la gaveta. Correct. Uh, anyway, uh, Dave, let's talk a little bit about the guy uh, who preceded Allegri at Juve. It's Conte. He went away to Old Trafford and got a 2-0 loss thanks to some ironic pragmatism from the man who preceded him at Chelsea. 
Oh, you know, <laughs> Mourinho is um, the king of pragmatism, and again, he showed why he is the best. He tried and tested this system against um, Conte's side away in the FA Cup, with Phil Jones pretty much picking up um, Eden Hazard and man marking him for you know the uh, sort of the time until Andrea's red card in that game it was excellent. Phil Jones was fantastic, kept uh, Hazard very quiet on the. Um, United's right, Chelsea's left-hand side. But then when Azar drifted over to the, you know, drifted into the centre of the pitch, drifted to the left-hand, the left-hand side of United's system, he got a bit of joy. What in fact Mourinho did instead of that against uh, Chelsea in the Premier League was he's put a midfielder on Eden Hazard, and that midfielder is a determined midfielder, a midfielder that's got no praise this season for his dogged work, but his dogged work in a creative sense, his dogged work in a defensive sense, and that is Ander Herrera, who for me has been one of the best central midfielders in the Premier League this season and showed again why he's more complete than Angulo Kante. Ander Herrera can do it all, he can create, he can score, but what he can do more importantly is man-mark, something that's not really in con- uh, Kante's game. Kante is a, a ball-winning central midfielder that's very good at pressurising slash covering ground what Ander Herrera showed you know his other his willingness to read the game his willingness to break the ball up in certain situations but his willingness to man mark a man which is incredible an incredible display from Mourinho and of course Manchester United to play much, pretty much a 3-4-2 that's, that's 10 players with Ander Herrera as the plus man who basically just followed Eden Hazard all over the pitch and nullified Eden Hazard who's been Chelsea's best creative player this season and it was it was a fascinating game tactically to see how um, you know how the game evolved with Conte throwing on Fabregas, then Kadek comes on. It, it was brilliant. But Mourinho, 100% won that game for United with the help, of course, of uh, Ander Herrera. Mm, interesting. Uh, people again being very critical, though, Dave, of uh, your boy Paul Pogba. <laughs> do they ever do they watch football? <laughs> Lawrence, Paul Pogba has created more chances than any other central oh, midfielder in the Premier League this season. Paul Pogba has completed more passes in the opposition's half that are forward than any other central midfielder in the Premier League. And also any other player. If you didn't see Paul Pogba's worth against Chelsea, you are stupid. The tackle that he made on Chelsea's only counter-attack was one of the best tackles we've seen from Paul Pogba this season. The tackle on Diego Costa when Chelsea were breaking down their right-hand side. Paul Pogba got back, won the tackle. But more impressively with Paul Pogba was his ability to link up with the front two that did so well in the game. That is obviously Jess Lingard and Marcus Rashford, who caused Chelsea centre-half so much problem running in behind um, stretching them vertically. They didn't have a moment on the ball, but Paul Pogba was the guy that was finding those passes. If you didn't think Paul Pogba played well in that game, should probably just put your TV in the bin and maybe start watching cricket. Very good point. Yeah, probably. Yeah, just put your TV in the bin and or, or send it to my house because I'd quite like another TV to be honest. Put the you. entire TV in the trash can. Yeah, that's what you should. Or just uh, do that thing where you uh, you smash it. Uh, I've heard that's <laughs> with good. a hammer. With a hammer. <laughs> Although you, it, it's really. I mean, I mean, I suppose it is a different effect, but it's not the same as those old TVs, you know, where it would sort of. There's the vacuum uh, in the TV and the, you know, the glass bashes. And maybe you buy an old TV and you smash it up. Sure. Just to make but then, what do you do with the new TV you're watching the football on? Um. Yeah. Also, been that just, but you put that like out quietly. Sure. You put like a VR chip. You put a VR chip in it so that you can only watch cricket. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, I mean, the, the the interesting thing here is, though, Dave, um, and, and Herrera obviously got that second goal. United would have won it anyway, obviously. But, um, you know, that deflection uh, and the handball uh, don't, don't make your answer about things levelling out over a season. 
I think it's it. It's one of these things where Ander Herrera was very brave. That when he made that inception with his hands, right, I'll, I'll yeah. let me let me finish. So it was, it was brave to to move away from his his designated opponent. His designated opponent was obviously Ander Herrera. Was sorry, Eden Hazard. He was man marking for man marking him for the full game. To step out and to be aggressive to press Matic is a, is a brave thing to do. And yes, it hit his arm. His arm was probably in a position that it shouldn't have been in, but it hit his arm. But then you've got to take everything else apart from that. United don't score that goal from the handball. United score that goal because Anderera threads a ball through Gary Cahill and Louise to Rashford to go home and to finish. Yes, yeah, but one doesn't happen without the other. One doesn't happen, but then you've still got to defend that situation. Whether it is unjust, whether it's not right, whether the refereeing is wrong, you still have to, je- you know, still have to defend that next phase. And the Herrera played that next phase, and Ander Herrera played the perfect pass. Marcus Rashford put the ball in the back of the net. It was 100% correct from United from that situation, from the handball. Chelsea did not defend that at all well. You know, M- Mourinho did catch out. David Luiz did catch out Gary Cahill. The ball was threaded between an area where United would have worked on that. United would have said, grab transition, you beat that you beat that central midfield press of Matic and Kante, you play those through balls to Rashford. And it was perfect. Yes, it was a small but, but situation. No, well, no, Dave, game. Dave, it wasn't perfect. It was a handball. <laughs> I'm talking about the move afterwards, Lawrence. He didn't handball it to Marcus Rashford, did he? He passed it to Marcus Rashford with right. his foot. Yeah, sure. But I mean, you would see why people are annoyed about that. And I can understand, but I think it's, it's one of these things where football's football. And Sorry, what? Apart from, you know, if you don't bring in video refereeing, you don't bring in this situation where, you know, it'd be a stop-start game, it has to be the judgment of the officials. And the referee was in a perfect position to make that call. He made the, you know, made potentially made the wrong call. But again, it's that second phase. It's the phase of, you know, after that decision. Chelsea didn't defend well. United scored a goal. Full stop. Right. You be, um. I don't even know where to start, really. Um, the, <laughs> would the issue be? Would the issue be though, Dave? That also is that? Would you say that sportsmanlike? What sportsmanlike? Pfft, nah, they don't need sportsmanlike in this day and age. We're too we're too fresh and friendly in this day and age in the Premier League. Oh, Jurgen Klopp plays great football. Oh, Marco Silva's a great foreign manager and all this we need this we need this Ander Herrera handball stuff still occurring in the Premier League because the rest of his performance deserved that assist the rest of Ander Herrera's game deserved for him to get on the assist scoreboard as well as him to score because he played so well so consequently I think it's fine for me whatever let's move on Lawrence I, so no you don't get to decide that um, <laughs> I mean, Nico, uh, as someone who talks about tackling in such a way, surely you must have a feeling about this handball as well. And that absolutely, if you're going to treat tackling in one way, maybe you should treat handballs in an absolute way as well. In, in what sense? I mean, obviously it was a handball, but it's something that the referee missed. And though it's obviously an annoyance, it's something that happens. And there, there's you can I think you can debate a lot. Like you can say that Chelsea weren't ready for Andrew Herrera's ball because half the players were claiming that it was a handball and all these other sort of things. But I don't think to, to demand that a player that Andrew Herrera stopped the play because he knew that it was a handball. I think that's something that's never going to happen. So wait, what? So what you're saying is that because Andrew Herrera <laughs> is a genius. It, so Ander Herrera should deliberately. Uh, surely he's misleading the referee. 
I mean, surely there's an element of misleading. It, de- it depends on what it depends on what you think happened. Do you think Andrew Herrera had nothing like he didn't know about it and just kind of hit his arm and then he went from there, or you think he purposely hit the ball with his hand and and then played the pass? I mean, it depends on what you think. I I haven't seen the, the I mean, replay. Like, I mean, it's also there. like Dave says, though, isn't it? That the arm was in sort of an unusual position, but then he was running in such a way. I mean, yeah, would, would that have been a penalty in the penalty area? No, not for me. It was he. It was in an unusual. Uh, it wasn't in an unusual position because he was running and his arm was like out. When you run, your arm is out. <laughs> so if you're running and then the ball bounces up from your foot to your hand and then it goes down, that's not an unnatural position. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Uh, Lawrence, I think you lost now, mate. I think that's it. No handball. Great goal. Man United win two 0 It's interesting, Dave, that you think. Uh, that I could win or have lost uh, asking perfectly reasonable questions, but that is... You maybe. obviously, Laura, if you don't understand this, Lawrence, you lost answering, you know, asking those questions, unfortunately, buddy. Right, maybe that's indicative. Capitalism, once again, is the victor. I'm not quite sure how Manchester United monetize <laughs> these. I mean, right. actually, I'm very sure how, ham- how handballs can be monetized in football, um, but less of that, the better. Shh, we're not sponsored by From Adidas for a reason. <laughs> I don't understand what... Dave, are you drunk? Oh, anyway, um, yeah, uh, Chelsea... Dave, can you smell toast? <laughs> He's not having a stroke, Chris. Um, I think I think what is interesting here, though, obviously, is that uh, they were without Courtois. Uh, Alonso went out in the warm-up. Um, Chelsea didn't cope very well, did they, Chris, with the change environment and with the change um, in not having Marcus Lundo and also not having Courtois at the back? Yeah, that was that was clearly a, a big change, and I saw a lot of people point to that both from a, a more sincere avenue, and then also people pointing to the fact that oh, next season will, will clearly be a massive struggle to Chelsea because you know they they won't have this consistency that they've been able to to foster this season. I, I think that's a, a little bit harsh. I think the truth lies in the fact that yes, there isn't a perhaps strength and depth in Chelsea that they should be. And they have been very fortunate not to be rocked by more injuries or suspensions during the season and, and maintain that continuity, if you will pardon the pun. Um, I, I think what will be different for the next season, obviously, you know, John Terry is, is confirmed as leaving the club this uh, season or at the end of this season. You'll have a lot of lone players come back that I think will actually play a part next season. Guys like Tammy Abraham, Andreas Christensen, I think, will will come into the fold. Um, maybe even Charlie Masonda. Just players that will give them that depth that they need without actually having to spend any money. Um, even possibly Izzy Brown is someone that I think could, could be quite an interesting um, choice for, for Conte to, to play with. So I, I think it was unfortunate for Chelsea. I don't think they handled... Um, their own style being projected against them, which I don't think they handled very well against Spurs either. Partly because in, in that instance, I think also the, the team they were facing had better um, wing-back options. So there, there's certainly things for, for Conte to work on. But then I think even if he'd won the league, an, an absolute canter, which again, it's still to be decided. Obviously, we have to say he's in a very strong position. He would He would look at this last 12 months and analyse it critically and say okay well where were we weak where can we improve because 
you'd be you'd be mad not to. No one stands still, even a team that, that wins the league. Conte with Kante at a canter. Certainly would have been an interesting uh, season. Uh, Spurs, as you already referenced, Chris, uh, have been referenced by Conte himself uh, as the best team over the last two years. It was an unusual comment uh, in a post-match press conference, almost to allude to the fact that Chelsea wouldn't deserve it. Um, Maybe, just maybe referencing some failures of other managers out there. Um, But I mean, fantastically, and you can also go and see a documentary we made on Pochettino um, on the the Football Republic uh, about why he's got them to this point. Uh, But again, Nico is a consummate performance from Spurs um, and they took Bournemouth apart. Yeah, and I think it was something that that was expected of them. And as you said, you know, um, Mauricio Pochettino's comments are weird. And I think it's one of those things that his English isn't his first language. So maybe the words didn't exactly represent what he said. But I think this is this. Yeah, it's it's one of those performances that that exemplifies, you know, how much Mauricio Pochettino has done. As Chris mentioned, I think in the uh, in the preview to this game, this is one of those matches where we could have seen Benicophobia at 79 minutes um, and, and where Spurs slip up. Whereas now, under this current evolution and current incarnation of, of Spurs under Pochettino, we see a completely different team, a team that is ready to face the smaller teams and have the onus of creation as well as you know, the big, it does well against the big teams and has a plan for, for both. Mm. Uh, excellent stuff in this game, Dave, uh, from Spurs. Uh, everything's coming up Spurs' house. Uh, as their players come back, uh, players are not burning out in the way that we originally thought they might. Um, and, you know, we look at a side who are, again, led by Harry Kane up front. I think they've done very well to get through this Harry Kane-less period with Son, with Ericsson, with Dele Alli, who've absolutely been fantastic with, obviously, Harry Kane out injured. Harry Kane is all about Spurs. You know, they all, it's, it's all about hitting Harry Kane and playing off Harry Kane, getting your, you know, your attacking players to combine with him. But, you know, this game was another pivotal moment for Harry Kane to be back in with the goals and back in with creating chances, back in with combining with his teammates, got a grabbed an assist, scored a goal, completed 88% of his passes, was a fantastic performance from Harry Kane. But if you think of what Deli Ali's done, what Eriksen's done, but more importantly for me against Bournemouth was uh, Moussa Dembele, who Ooh. completed 64 of his 65 passes against uh, Bournemouth, completing 98.4%, which is incredible. But he, he scored a goal as well, kept it really ticking over in the centre of the park, which is a very important thing for this Spurs side to to keep the ball moving, to keep the opposition moving. And again, Pochettino moved away from three at the back to a four at the back, played a 4-2-3-1, had Eriksen, Ali and Son combining. And it was... It, this team is, is is incredible. It really is incredible. It's, it's full of young players, full of hungry players, driven by a manager that plays football the right way. So for me, I'd love Spurs to win the Premier League. It'd just be absolutely fantastic. But again, we've got the last six games where the win rate goes down to 40% under Pochettino at Southampton at Spurs. It's one of these things where they need to eradicate that. They may have done that by playing a less aggressive style of football over the season, but we will see. That was, next, that was the next thing I was going to reference, actually, Dave, was uh, yeah, that, that run-in has often tripped them up. And the interesting thing was, obviously, that during that run-in last season, the people who tripped them were indeed Chelsea, even, even if they probably had fallen, would, have short, would have fallen short anyway. Chelsea very but much it, got into their heads. But I think yeah. one of the... Sorry, Dave, go, go on. on. No, no, go on. No, go on, no, go on. No, go on. 
I think one of the one of the best things that, that Pochettino has done, probably one of the most difficult things, is sort of alleviating alleviating the the pressure and sort of reliance on someone like Moussa Dembele, who has come into to, I guess, a formative or not a formative period, but the best part of uh, best part of his career in the latter stages. You know, being that central midfield presence, dominating possession and keeping possession in in central areas and and areas where you're going to be able to take advantage of it. You know. In, in the best offensive sense and sort of alleviating that pressure through by changing the formation by, uh, you know, propping up the roles of different players in that team. And not enough can be said about the work he's done in taking the over-reliance away while still making use of that player when they need him to, when they can switch, like you mentioned, Lawrence, from a 3-4-3 or a 4-2-3-1 or many different systems is having many different answers to a multitude of problems. It's almost if we pick just the right managers uh, to cover at just the right time on just the right documentaries. Uh, head over to TFR. That's the Football Republic, not the front three, uh, where you can see all of those. And in fact, yeah, most of TF3 are on them. It's as if... Heavy influence, heavy, heavy influence. Heavy, heavy hit after heavy hit as we're... West it's as if they say. don't like Americans. It's as if... It's a surprising shift to nepotism on that channel, I find. Yeah. Um, yeah, although uh, Chris's ironic lack of awareness of the nepotism which previously existed on that channel is now kicking me in the face. Um, anyway, Chris, uh, let's let's move on, shall we? Although you were a heavy influence on the Conte documentary because you did... Uh, contribute heavily behind the scenes um and that was barely thanked monetarily when i say barely i mean not at all anyway let's move on um nico definitely hadn't told me that uh, give me another season um give me another series uh, nico let's come to you uh southampton give me another uh, explanation nico uh, southampton nil man city three yeah, it was a it was a performance that I was or a game that I was really dreading because I I really do value what Claude Puel has done at Southampton. I think he's been able to deal with uh, a variety of things that haven't gone his way. Um, you know, Virgil Van Dijk going out and not necessarily having a, a striker option at the beginning of the season. Obviously, Gabbiadini has come in and done a job, but even previous to that, he made good use of Charlie Austin. Um, and I've seen them, you know, perform excellent against a, a similar attacking system in Liverpool, or at least one that creates similar results in, in sort of their attacking efficacy. But you know, this this game for me really highlighted. Um, what is the advantage of playing out of the back? Although the commentators lamented uh, and, and continually disparaged uh, Manchester City's insistence of playing the ball through Claudio Bravo, it did provide uh, a number of results for Manchester City, who, although they started slow, they were able to to capitalize and, and continue um, to, I guess, push upon their 1-0 their take upon Southampton and, and get all three points in a relatively comfortable performance after about 60 minutes do you think Pepper will be disappointed with the position they find themselves in no uh yeah i think every manchester city fan was expecting a bit more from guardiola um he was probably expecting a bit more from himself uh in in terms of his first year but i think even now guardiola doesn't know his best formation doesn't know the best 11 necessarily and it's the ceiling hasn't even been close to been reached quite yet uh so I'm excited to see what is to come, but I think, yeah, man, many Manchester City fans um, and Pep Guardiola himself will, will be disappointed that they couldn't make a push for 
maybe further in the Champions League or, or or in the league, but you know we're in the latter stages of the FA Cup, which is something that I think is a is a is a possibility this season. So if we can get that, that's a that's a that'll be a decent first year for Guardiola. Pep does make things look so easy when things do finally click. Uh, it's just making it click initially, maybe that, that some people wanted to trip him up over. Um, Sane very satisfying on the break. Were you happy for company? Is that is this sort of a goodbye season? Uh, I would really hope so. The the difficult thing about transitioning, <laughs> the difficult thing about transitioning, uh, like legendary players and players that ultimately the fan base and even legendary, those outside of the come on. <laughs> well, legendary for Manchester City. So like Yaya Toure and Vincent Company and David Silva, those players for me will will be legendary players for Manchester City because course, they'll be yeah. the the genesis amongst you know the the generation that has brought the club to where it is and hopefully to where it continues to be. Um, so I think you know though Vincent Company has done very well under Pep Guardiola when he has gotten the ability to play and has gotten the chance to play. I really hope that we don't struggle and have that old you know time of moving on from a player that we all love and really wished had a better time with had a better you know better luck with injuries and and such but it's 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 difficult to imagine that he'll play a major role going forward and i really hope that the club handles that in the best way yeah very good point uh let's move on to liverpool uh, yes, another manager made a documentary about. Uh, anyway, uh, West Brom nil, uh, Liverpool one away from home. Uh, Robert, Roberto Firmino, as they call him in Brazil, Dave, coming good. Uh, and he even managed to joke a little bit about taking his own shirt off, <laughs> just like you. Uh, well, he has been booked, I think, seven times in the last three seasons or four seasons for being excessively celebrating, which, uh, in, in my opinion, is disgraceful. You know, Firmino needs to understand there's a time to take your shirt off and it's not on that football pitch. But no, Liverpool did well. I think the interesting thing was... You defend handballing, motherfucker, but you will Uh, not. (laughs) Lawrence, he needs to keep his shirt on, right? Right. We need to say it. But what the interesting part was, obviously, Liverpool scoring from, you know, a crossing position with Firmino uh, standing at five foot eleven, you know, putting the header into the back of the net following a flick on from Lucas. I think it's it's an interesting one against the likes of um, Johnny Evans, McCauley, Craig Dawson. You know, credit to Jurgen Klopp. Jurgen Klopp's obviously potentially worked on something like that to undo the West Brom defence and it's worked well for Liverpool and it's got a massive massive result this is huge from Liverpool this is one of the bogey teams of West Brom in recent years have just had the beating of Liverpool and, and you know to show the character in the side without Seydou Mane as well who has a cracking conversion rate who scored the most goals for Liverpool in the Premier League shows great character in the side but also Firmino a Brazilian in form he really is a Brazilian in form right now um it's it's also obviously fascinating to see uh, what form he gets out of other players around him and whether that uh, similarly applies to the likes of Felipe Caccini, uh, who has had some changeable uh, results recently. Liverpool, obviously, without Henderson, Lallana, um, others, uh, and uh, Daniel Sturridge sitting on the bench. It looks as if his time at the, the club is uh, now coming to an end, uh, which for a lot of people is very sad. Uh, and he, he was How do you fantastic. feel about that, Lauren? Um, you know what? I think he's a Premier League... I, I think he's probably one of those players who will finish his career as one of sort of the maligned players in the Premier League. Um, but he was fantastic for a number of years 
before he came to Liverpool and will continue to be great when he leaves. He just does not fit with this pressing system, um, for at least for Jurgen Klopp. And while Jurgen's at the top, you know, I think Daniel Sturridge has to go. I think maybe Liverpool will struggle to find a suitor. Um, Do you think this this result was a bit of a blip on the radar in terms of their ability to to get points against um, against uh, the likes of a West Brom or or Southampton or teams that maybe they should be beating? Uh, well, I mean, the, the issue is that a lot of people seem to be full of praise for Simon Mignolet right now, right? I mean, yeah. um, he's made. So- and I think that's the that's the problem is that. <sighs> As this is where Manchester City differentiate themselves is that where Liverpool have certain tactics and Klopp has certain tactics, and I think this is something that Chris has spoken to, is that Liverpool, specifically Jurgen Klopp, has yet to really adapt his more tactics to breaking down a team that's going to sit in a low block. And I think a goalkeeper that is better with the ball at his feet can add that dimension to Liverpool where they can pull those teams out as opposed to trying to throw the kitchen sink at it and forcing it through and possibly getting hit on the counter by a West Brom or a Burnley or whoever. I'd like to see someone, uh, what someone with an expected goals model. I know that's not necessarily the only way you can apply it, but um, would have applied in this game because uh, as Tony Pulis made the point uh, in post-match, it wasn't really the um, set pieces which brought up the goal opportunities for West Brom in this one. It was actually um, a series of open play uh, where Liverpool were found wanting. And again, Mignolet kind of coming to Liverpool's rescue. Um, but does that mean he deserves to stay at the end of the season? Probably so. Uh, does that mean bad things for Carrius? Possibly. Uh, you'd imagine that Carrius wants to go and play first-team football elsewhere, and he probably should be allowed to do that. Um, but maybe they'll compete in the summer. Uh, Liverpool would have conceded against sides who had better finishing and therefore would have could have lost 2-1 or even drawn. And that would have been a terrible slip uh, for Liverpool. The issue is for Liverpool, they don't actually have any teams. Um, I don't think they have any top teams who sit in the top six in this final run uh, towards the end of the season. So it's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, looking at Liverpool's fixtures come the end of the season, it just goes uh, Crystal Palace, Watford, uh, Southampton, West Ham, and then Middlesbrough. Uh, we sure will see how Liverpool finish the season. Um, but yeah, great. Uh, West Brom, I think, look more creative than people give them credit for. And actually, it was quite interesting. Uh, I was I was looking at the, the ages of this West Brom side after someone in the commentary mentioned uh, that that back line was all older than 30, maybe some of them even 35 plus. Um, and I was wondering if maybe when we were talking about uh, the, the the way that Pulis shuts his side down, first of all, they're on, the, the, they're on course for uh, the best points haul they've ever had uh, in the Premier League. And secondly... Uh, with so many people who are aging, maybe part of what uh, Pulis does is maintains his side's fitness. And rather that players don't get injured come the end of the season, rather than push for something that they know that they can realistically not achieve. Just a point. Uh, while we're also on the pool. Wait a minute. No, wait, that point. So he's saying that they're over 30. So Craig Dawson is 26. John Evans is 29. Both south of... 30 but obviously massively key components in this back four it just seems as a obviously it's a throwaway comment from you Lawrence but it seems again like these people that are commenting on games of football need to do a little bit more research 
Yeah, but I'm also looking at other people. Obviously, there's uh, Gareth McCauley in there, who is... Obviously, you've got McCauley, who's 36, but then apart from that, the and rest of them are Chris, a very good age. Chris, Chris Brunt as well, obviously. But again, Chris Brunt, you know, in terms of a defender, is probably quite young. In terms of, you know... He's 32. Played midfield most of his, but played, played midfield most of his career. He's a young defender at, at that age. You know, fullbacks can go until they're 34, 35, 36... It's all about Chris Brunt's delivery. That's why he's playing left back for Tony Pulis. Again, it's, I don't know. It's just missing. For me. It's not a missing. Fullbacks can go till thirty-six. Danny hmm. Alves, Cafu. How old is Danny Alves? He's around thirty, aren't he? Thirty. He's definitely. He's definitely another side of thirty. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, this, and they just absolutely bust, bust Neymar out of a game. Yeah, Thirty-three well, years mean, old. Well, I mean, also the argument also could go along the lines of Danny Alves is actually more of a right winger than he is a right back for this Juve side. Um, We're not going to have a right chuckle for the fact they've lamented people's knowledge, and then when Danny Alves is thirty, <laughs> uh, but Chris thirty-three was correct. So in fact, I was correct. Yeah, but you said that with no confidence at all. <laughs> no, no, I was thinking. I was thinking. What shut age the, you shut was. the dark. You can't just jump out with ages. You can't say, you know, Lawrence McKenna is 21 because he's but, no longer but, 21. He's actually but, 23 years old. But Danny Elvis is, 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 is not the norm. So, like, I get what you're saying, but I don't think, like, Pablo Zabaleta is as old as Danny Elvis or similar yeah, he was, in age. He was and he looks years ago, mate. But you, I mean, I mean, Paul Dummett's going to go until he's 36. <laughs> Hope not. I'm really not looking forward to this. Well, I mean, uh, all I'm all I'm saying is there are a couple of older players in there, um, and they were, they were looking. A lot of people commenting on the age of those players. Um, I mean, I mean, you could also make a converse argument that you know, look at Maldini or look at Nesta, or look at any of these guys who then have the experience and can read the game. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast better um but let's see i mean you know he, he also has a, a fairly limited squad in that sense but when you have an opponent that looks to isolate offensive players versus those fullbacks you can read the game as well as you like but it will ultimately come in certain games it will come down to how quick a player is or you know how physical you can be at a certain age how good he can be on his feet yeah yeah and that's where Pablo Zabaleta has found wanting. That's where Becker Sanya has been found wanting. That's where Gal Clichy has been found wanting. And those are all players that are younger. Nico, you're all, you're all, you state in terrible fullbacks <laughs> that recovered from their pace. That was that their, their career is built out of, of speed. And when they get to a stage where the speed goes, game over. 
but the, a large a large proportion of the fullback role is having that pace, is getting those crosses in, is being able to cope defensively because attackers are quick. So although you may not necessarily need to be the fastest player in the world to be a left back or a right back, it's certainly a necessary quality to have some degree of pace. Nico, just admit it. Zabaleta's crocs. <laughs> I've said that, but I'm saying Danny Alves is not the norm. He's an outlier. <laughs> Uh, and in exactly. many ways, apparently, he's an outlier at Juve as well. Anyway, moving on. Um, uh, they're old. I'm going to put it that way. Uh, yeah. While we're on Liverpool, though, let's talk about uh, justice for the 96. Uh, Liverpool, uh, as a club, also commemorated this weekend and credit to uh, all the other sides in the Premier League who also did the same, uh, including Everton and Manchester United, some of Liverpool's closest rivals. Um it's it's a weekend to remember, uh, as are most weekends for Liverpool and Liverpool fans as they travel around the country um, or also are at home. Um, and it's it also seems especially pertinent um, when someone else who was so implicated uh, within besmirching people's names has been such a a ridiculous figure again this week. Um, you know, does anyone? I mean, how Calvin McKenzie is still in the press? Uh, actually, I'm not going to go off the back of that because, you know, we don't want to conflate those two issues. Um, but just don't buy the Sun. Should we put it that way? Um, yeah, let's move on to Everton though. Uh, Everton won three one at home, Chris, uh, against Burnley. Um, and it, yeah, I mean, looking at where Everton can finish themselves this season, they're only three points off Manchester United. And they're numerically not out of the top four. No, they're not. Um, and I also like that Lukaku's goal was a direct copy of a move he showed Jamie Carragher in an interview. Interesting. And he said he said that I don't. He basically explained how he holds players off and looks to spin them. Um, and he said I don't think there's any defender in the league that can stop me when I'm like this. And he proceeded to do exactly that. To I think it was Michael Keane. Um, I think it was him, but yeah, I, I think like I think Everton are in a, a stage of transition. The fact that they're this high in the league while doing it is a great sign. I think they've actually flown a little bit under the the radar a little bit um, because again, it is just Coleman's first season. I don't think he's been able to sort of implement the financial muscle that Everton possess. Quite yet. I mean, he's yes, he signed Balassi, but even still, that was one signing, and actually, he's not really felt the benefit of that because Balassi obviously injured himself for the the season. I think as a team, they're a very exciting team. They're a very fun team to watch. I'm curious now to see how they improve because there's there's I would say actually maybe Lukaku stands alone. After that, I would say there's a lot of players that are of a similar level. So in in that instance. You then have to decide, well, okay, what do we prioritise here? Because their defence, I think, looks very solid. Uh, You look at Ashley Williams, Mason Hongate has quite a good future. Coleman, when he comes back, Baines again. Then you're looking at the midfield, at Schneiderlin, again, Barkley, McCarthy, etc. It's going to be an interesting task for, for Coleman in terms of pushing them to the next level and getting them into that potential top four. A lot of people making good points about Coleman doing very well. Uh, Some people on 606 saying that um, Everton are what Spurs were a few years ago. 
could there be an argument made for that, uh, Dave? I mean, you know, the, the point no. is that they've, they've been waiting for investment for quite some time. They now have that investment, and apparently they will be given a war chest. I think that's a load of rubbish. Really, do I think it's a, that's just terrible analysis once again? Everton as a football club is so far away from what Spurs are doing. Spurs uh, had just got, you know, if we're going to compare it to the, the start of the Pochettino reign, they just got a hungry manager that had proved massive things at Southampton at Espanyol. Coming Spurs have got, yeah, but Ronald Koeman had failed at Valencia, failed at Benfica has done half decent at Southampton, is doing okay with, with Everton with a very, very high wage expenditure, with a very high transfer fee. His signings have been terrible. Lukaku's going, who scored 23 goals and got, you know, six, uh, 24 goals, sorry, got six assists. He's been the first player to have been directly involved in 30 Premier League goals this season. He's going to be gone. I, honestly, I just Everton and Spurs are so, like, it's, it's, it's so far away in terms of North Pole, South Pole. That's what it's kind of like in terms of comparing those two clubs. One club's going the right way, one club's not going the right way, and that's Everton. But they both have penguins. Um, anyway, or do they? That's, and I think that is the real footballing question for all of us. Um, Checkmate. Uh, I will. Um, anyway, uh, moving on, there are plenty of other great uh, results happening all over Europe. Uh, Dave, let's go to Bundesliga real quick, because Borussia Dortmund, uh, who suffered terribly uh, earlier in the week for a number of reasons both on and off the pitch uh, both to hugely different degrees um, are a team who are currently um, trying to overcome that and uh, arguably the result on the pitch can't be at all compared to what happened off it and it could have been much much worse there is a case to be made um, that they shouldn't even be playing football right now but they did and they won 3-1 yeah I think it, it, it's a massive thing you, you know you hear what Thomas Tufel was saying post the Champions League game where it was someone above that made the decision at, at Borussia Dortmund. You hear about uh, Berkey's comments uh, before this game uh, against Eintracht Frankfurt. He was he's sort of saying that every player after the game against Monaco was crying, only UEFA cares about money and, and so forth. But Dortmund did get the job done on the pitch. They won 3-1. Marco Royce scoring the opener after three minutes, you know, coming back from injury, a returning goal. But I think it's all about Christian Pulisic, the positive side of Dortmund at the moment. It's been absolutely fantastic playing this sort of right wing-back role in uh, the 3-4-3, uh, three, three, as you call it. And he's, he's just been so composed on the ball, so good at getting forward. And again, grabbed himself an assist, but an all-round had a fantastic performance, linked with the likes of Dembele, Aubameyang, Marco Royce. So, it is positive for Dortmund, but again, it's sort of marred by this situation where it seems like this game was forced. The, the terrible incidents of last Tuesday, there wasn't time for Dortmund as a club, Dortmund as players to kind of reevaluate what was going on in their lives, and they were just forced to play this game of football. And at the end of the day, life is more important than football. We all love football, we all listen to football, we all watch football, but kind of one of these things where it's the decision was wrong the decision the, the, the game this the game against Monaco should be played this week not last week we're sort or of maybe it's sort of weeks, a, three weeks or so you know I mean, even I mean, a month. It's, it's so so short I mean it's it's sort of a difficult one isn't it because um you know obviously there's the situation that it, it is obviously great to use football as a healer at times it's also great to use football as a symbol of things but if it's been the players themselves that have been attacked you know, it's not as if these people are just uh, are only representing now uh, the symbol of, you know, say when the attacks in France happened, uh, or you know when when something happens, very often people flock towards football. 
these players themselves were the victims of an attack. Um, and I think, you know, it's almost a similar way to the way that uh, they treat head injuries in football. Is, any, is anyone here? Is anyone here bleeding? Okay, well then get them to a hospital and everyone else is fine. It's a bit of a weird one. Um, and it, I mean, there isn't, arguably, there hasn't really been a very reasonable um, solution put forward, has there? Because stopping the actual season itself uh, would, would obviously be a terrible thing. And you also could put the team in a huge deficit if there is, say, a massive points gap at the top and they realise what they have to do to, say, achieve a Champions League place or something like that. I think it's got it's got the both side of it. You've got to you've got to have that human side of football. It's a bit strange. Like uh, today, just a, a random moment, I was um, having dinner with my girlfriend, and we were talking about like days that she gets off work. She works for a French company in England, and she was talking about Bastille Day and how she was going to have off off work. And I was like, okay, why don't we? You know, it's in um, in June or July. You know, apologies for the not correct day. I think it's the fourteenth of July, maybe. Why don't we go to France and um, you know spend the time with your family and, and and just enjoy it there? And obviously that was the same time that the Nice attacks happened last year. It's one of these weird things where terrorism and these terrible atrocities are now going to get combined with our lives, and we need to be able to deal with these things. We need to give people more time. People are people, and you don't know how this is going to affect any of the players that play for Borussia Dortmund you know, bombs around a bus. Imagine yourself in that situation. It's absolutely terrible. It's going to take you more than a day, more than half a day to get over that. It may take you weeks, may take you months, but it, it's just one of these things where football needs, has to have more responsibility in these situations. It has to deal with this a bit better, whether it's your wafer or it's um, the sponsors or whoever. Somebody needs to stand up and say, this is a little bit wrong. We need to just take a step back. We're just kicking a ball around for 90 minutes. We could do that next week. We can do that the week after. What's more important is the, the mental health of the likes of, uh, you know, Nori Sahin, uh, obviously Mark uh, Barcher, Ryan, of course, on the Statman Day football podcast. I, I always get his name wrong, but there's, there's big people there that you need to, to give them a bit more support. The coaches, the staff, the bus driver and all sorts. That Again, the Champions League, it's, it's glory, the money that it makes. It's a little bit wrong for me. It really is. It's taken the wrong way. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult to gauge because a lot of people obviously uh, have uh, suffered through terrorism, and it, you know, fo- football is very much used as a beacon of hope for a lot of people. Um, I think at this point, you see how interconnected and how important to a lot of people football is. Um, I, it may be cynical to say that they only play because of money. Um, you know, we know after other disasters, people have also been forced to play on. Um, and, you know, not least other people in the Champions League as well. Um, I'm not saying, obviously, it doesn't mean I don't have sympathy for these people who had to play on, and it would be a very different situation, I think, um, if something, uh, thankfully, it didn't, but thankfully, uh, if something more terrible had happened on that day. Um, Anyway, let's also go to, uh, obviously, also uh, Munich drew this weekend against Leverkusen. Uh, Most people saying at this point that's academic, uh, in terms of the season, uh, but looking at that race to get into Europe, it also feels somewhat academic. Uh, let's go to Syria now. Uh, Nico, you may have discussed this on the Statman Day football podcast. Juve got their uh, 2-0 win against Pescara, uh, and Inter drew against AC. AC, of course, with good news this week. They're getting rid of the Illuminati, and they're bringing in uh, the Chinese. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, Berlusconi, the the club's most um, most successful uh, managers or not manager, sorry, owner. Um, In many ways, he was a champ- manager. <laughs> brought them five Champions Leagues, I think, which is over the the amount of time that he was there, which is incredible. And of, um, I think he had something like thirty two trophies in the time he was there, almost yeah, as many insane- as Danny Alves is old, according to date. <laughs> an insane amount of success under Berlusconi, and 32. now um, they're now they're under the uh, now they're under the 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 ownership and financial might, I guess, of uh, of a Chinese consortium. Um, which is similar to their their crosstown rivals, Inter Milan, who received their financial backing from a Chinese consortium uh, a while ago as well. So it'll be interesting to see how they can they compete on those fronts and how Serie A sort of uh, comes back from the ebb and flow of, of different leagues sort of falling out and not necessarily competing on the same financial scale that the Premier League or other leagues around Europe has, have been able to do for a while. Um, but in terms of the game, is an interesting one. A similar strategy, actually, that Pioli employed to, to Mourinho in terms of Nagatomo man-marking Suso so that you know he, the, the, the Milan, AC Milan didn't get uh, as much service to their forwards as, as probably they would have wanted. But, you know, slipping in the, in the latter parts of the game and allowing AC Milan some high-fidelity chances through... Um, through basically eliminating their press and just going to a low block later in the game is essentially what allowed Milan to come back in the last 17 minutes of the game. Also, a lot of people claiming foul in the sense that there was five minutes of extra play and basically seven minutes were played. Um, So controversy, but at at the end of the day, it was a very interesting game. Um, And in terms of the chances, I think it came out out even as well. So it's going to be interesting to see how how Serie A uh, heats up over the next couple of years. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. Uh, I, I'm, why were seven extra minutes played? Was there any reason why? Or was it just sort of... There was like room? there was some incidents in the extra time, So, but the referee really, like, he was, I think, even the interplayer, the, or not even the interplayers, but the interplayers were really complaining that, that there, there shouldn't have been that the amount of time extra played in, in extra time. Um, so, you know, the, the, they were obviously upset about it, but AC Milan is static to get the draw. Yeah, I mean, it is also down to the referee's dis- discretion. The number, of, the number held up on the and, board, and and Zapata basically scoring with the last kick of the game. It was the last kick of the game that yeah. that he got the equalizing goal. So yeah, but again, though, it is just a recommendation from the uh, referee's assistant. He doesn't have to take that. He can add on. A, he could add on fifteen minutes if he wants. Very true. Very yeah. true. The ref holds the power. Um, but of course, that, that would be unusual to add on 15 minutes. Um, although it has happened. Uh, of, of course, Locatelli also playing in this game, or Locatelli playing in this game. Uh, Chris, a precocious young talent in Europe and getting uh, the, the final assist as well for Zapata. Um, it, it's going to be interesting to see how uh, Italians cope in this team now, isn't it, with all this new investment coming in. Uh, whilst everyone welcomes in the new owners. A lot of Italians are worried that young Italian talent will end up leaving the league um, because they'll end up importing a lot of players. Well, that's that's the thing. The timing of this one is, is funny in a, in a variety of ways, mostly because Montella had cultivated quite a young, vibrant side. You look at De Feo, Suso, Locatelli, arguably typifies that someone that came through the academy like Donnarumma. You would sort of think that moving forward, it, it is wise to put more faith in that academy because it has, I would say, consistently produced players, if not always for Milan. I think what would perfectly 
be be harmony for for mine in this instance is to use the money that you you mentioned there to to really kind of accrue the the backer type players the really high level players but then meld them with the italians as well because i think then you get the the perfect blend of you know someone like gattuso for example i appreciate he wasn't a, a graduate of milan's academy but he was certainly someone that grasped the club's passion its history its ideology and took that out onto the field and I think maintained a standard amongst the squad because of that. Does it put them in a the place, Chris, where, where they can they can keep hold of a Donnarumma or a, you know, a, a young Italian talent? Because obviously there was a lot of talk about Donnarumma being on his way off this summer because that could have funded some vital transfers. But at this point, they've got the investment. They don't necessarily need to sell, especially as they're not in Europe. They're not going to be in Europe, are they? Well, that's the other thing as well. I think a lot of this will depend on the 10 players that play with Donnarumma. And what I mean by that is it depends how they invest the money. I think for him, the thing is he is still so frighteningly young. He's got such a long career ahead of him. But I think that it can be hard to perhaps have that um, sense of self-awareness when you are presented with the chance to to go to, to one of these huge clubs. Um, like I think he will be afforded, if not in the summer, then definitely next summer. Um, I, I, th- I also think, though, as well, with instances like that, you look at maybe Lukaku, another good example, albeit not a academy graduate of Everton. You, you do have to match that ambition for them. You do have to show them that remaining there is beneficial to their career. I really don't think you can just pull out the loyalty card anymore and say, well, you know, you're one of us. All this. I think you do have to match their sporting ambitions. And whether, you know, whether they can do that for Donnarumma, it'll depend how Montella invests that money. I think that's the key thing. That there's a lot of money being spent by the, the elite clubs in, in Italy. At the minute you look at Juventus, you look at Inter throwing their money around, but it's it's how you use it and, it, and whether you do it intelligently. I think if you look at their, their rivals, Inter, they didn't do it that intelligently when, when they had the chance to spend. And I think there could be a lot of lessons learned in that respect. Yeah, very interesting point. Uh, yeah, Dave, does it worry you at all uh, that the David De Gea rumours are coming back up? No. Uh, you know, I've said before, a goalkeeper at this level, having a goalkeeper of David De Gea's quality isn't as important as having good centre-backs. I think that's something United need to address. So then surely you're worried about David De Gea leaving? Not really. I think um, if you, a, a, a solid defence is, is better than David De Gea. And David De Gea has shown that he wants to leave. Why not let him leave this summer? Get a load of money, replace him with uh, a top centre-half and bring another goalkeeper of top quality. And it's simple as anything. But anyway, David De Gea, not too bothered. But De Gea in the hand is worth... Um, I don't know how that phrase ends. It's not, though. Anyway, uh, maybe now I'm actually going to add to Dave's point. Uh, and it is a, it's a good point. Uh, for years, Chelsea built... Although they actually also had a really great goalkeeper, so maybe I'm not. Uh, the years Chelsea built on uh, the bedrock that was John Terry at the back. Uh, and John Terry is apparently now leaving the club, uh, to which many men on the King's Road breathe a huge sigh of relief. Um, but John Terry himself is very upset about it, Nico. Um, allegedly. And apparently he could be on his way, not joking here, to West Brom. Um, to add to those plus 30 players that are already at the back. 
could be a good move for them considering uh, how Tony Pulis likes to use his defenders and, you know, how how their experience and their combined experience would lead to further uh, the furthering of the Pulis ball. But from what I've heard, um, and maybe we can talk to Chris about this, you know, uh, an MLS move is on the cards. Good God. Chris? For old JT? Yep. Uh, For old JT. Apparently, a report via ESPN says sources in the league uh, claim there is no interest in John Terry. Do you do you think that makes sense, or do Ooh, you think that, that a team in MLS could make some use of him? No, I don't think so. I, th- I think you look at defenders that have made that move, Nesta, Yelly Van Dam, people like that. It, it's it's not a terrible move, providing you've got the smarts to to make up for the fact you're not very quick. But I think the kind of money he would want, the the way I characterize it now, and and I get asked a fair amount, would aging European player, you know, make it an MLS or would they get a contract? They'd have to take an Ashley Cole contract. And what I mean by that is he's earning, I think, 200,000 at the minute, which is a, not a huge sum, a relative pittance, actually, when you compare it to European wages. But all those endorsement deals he must be having. Well, the, the thing is, obviously, he's made his money already. Um, and so the the benefit for him is the lifestyle, the culture, all that kind of stuff. He, he might get, you know, kickbacks in other ways. They may pay for his house or whatever. But the actual core salary is very much diminished. And it's it's a case of this is this has gone on for years. Play, players will read in USA Today or whatever. Thierry Henry is on $4 million and Henry is on six. And, and they think, okay, well, I'm a rung or two down from them, so I should be able to command a million, two million. And it just doesn't work like that. It's it's actually reached a stage where I think clubs have become a lot cannier negotiators. That They're not as willing to throw money at, at anyone, especially an older player. You look at, at the way the, the landscape's changed. I think every... The average age of, of foreign players that came over in the summer was 26, um, if, if memory serves me right. And there was a number of young DPs in there as well, guys like Albert Russell, Coleman, um, Jose Martinez, Miguel Almiron. A lot of clubs now are looking at it and saying, yeah, it's, it's great to have the ancillary benefits of marketing and, and leaving a footprint on the, the world and getting you know ESPN or, or whoever to reach out and want to do an interview. But really, we need to be winning things. And, and at the minute... I struggle to see a, a team in MLS that really needs someone like John Terry. Maybe in a push, Portland, but they've already invested DP money in, in Liam Ridgewell, who's who's 31. So I'd be surprised if if they went down that route again. And of course, it would be difficult to tempt John Terry uh, to MLS. He's a man who's famously not very good at taking advantage of the extra lifestyle benefits that are report, uh, reportedly afforded to a multimillionaire. Well, he might not want the hassle as well. I mean, this is this is the thing. A man also famously <clears throat> when, who just doesn't want the hassle. Well, well, the thing is, when Frank Lampard came over... Um, of course, to escape John Terry. One of the first things that was <laughs> put to him was uh, a very awkward situation that occurred after 9-11 where him and some players got drunk in a, an airport um, departure gate and apparently abused some Americans. Now, it, it's important to, to state it clearly it wasn't to do with 9-11. It was just the fact that we were being drunk and being obnoxious. But obviously the timing of it was seen as quite offensive. And it was something that Frank had to deal with. It was something he had to discuss early on when he came here. And you do have to think the fact that 
John Terry has a few more of those sort of less than desirable stories, stories at the front of the paper, if you will, means that he, he might not really want that kind of hassle. Just Googling Wayne Bridge's location. Wayne Bridge. No. He's, uh... Yeah. Uh, where is he now? His uh, spouse is Frankie Bridge. Yes, of S Club Juniors. Maybe that seems relevant to John. Um, he is no longer playing football, it seems, I think. His, his last TV appearance was I'm a Celebrity. Yeah, he's retired. Uh, he played as a left-back, I'm informed reliably. Um yeah, turns out Wayne, yeah, Wayne Bridge. Although his salary is uh oh in 2011 6 4.68 million pounds. Wow. It's a lot of money. Not a, not a bad gig if you can get it. Uh Google also says people also search for uh Frankie Bridge, John Terry, Ashley Cole, Sean Wright Phillips, and Una Healy, whoever that is. Anyway, another, uh, another member of the Saturday married to rugby player Ben Forden. <laughs> Your nebulous knowledge goes well beyond mine, Chris. Uh, how do you know she's married to him? Just one of them things I know. <laughs> Give me another series. Anyway, uh, let's go to Europe again. Uh, let's go back to Europe uh, from across the continent as we preview European football. Uh, let's start with the only, only English contingent left in the competition, Dave. Atletico Madrid go away uh, to Leicester. Leicester, of course, drawing on the weekend uh, and finding themselves in still a comfortable position within the league. Doesn't look as if they're going to go down at this point. Uh, but as Leicester welcome Atletico to the Midlands, do you think they've got a chance? I don't think so. No, I think Atletico should have more fight, more foot, more determination, especially in central midfield, than Atletico have ever come up against. Than, than sorry, Leicester have ever come up against. I think it's it's one of these things where Atletico have been doing the Leicester City better than Leicester City have done it for a number of years. The likes of um, you know Sol and, and Gabby in central midfield really bossed the show in that first leg, and Didi in Drinkwater. I don't think they've ever felt something so intense, and then you throw in cocaine. Carrasco on the wings it, it's a very physical central midfield that Leicester City kind of you know they haven't really come up against and I don't think they could deal with that Jamie Vardy was atrocious in the first leg and Griezmann wasn't in it was in good form but wasn't in the classic Anton Griezmann form so expect him to come back Wes Morgan's still out injured so I can't expect anything else other than an Atletico Madrid win to progress them through to another semi-final Diego Godin of course Dave saying that Vardy would fit in to a lot of teams around the world I think he, he he would do. I think it, you know Simeone said before the first leg that he'd fit into the Atletico side. Maybe this is bringing this is game this is sort of um, gamesmanship in a way. It's playing these head games. Oh, Jamie Vardy could play for us. Jamie Vardy's one of the best players in the world. Is that creating doubt in his own mind because he failed to complete a single pass in that first leg? Create you know attempted two, completed zero. So maybe this is Atletico playing these my game mind games that have just classically worked in European football in the past few. Decades, so maybe it's it's Atletico getting one over before the games even started. Of course, heading out to uh, Madrid uh, are Real Madrid and Bayern Munich. Nico, 
uh, of course, in the first leg, it ended 2-1 to Real Madrid, who get those two away goals. Munich found themselves down when they were or could have been in the driving seat. Uh, what are you expecting from this one? I think Real will go through, not because of uh, any sort of tactical or or uh, brilliant or individual brilliance for any sort of player, but but you know Javi Martinez is a huge miss for Bayern Munich, not only because they don't have that many healthy center backs, but because he's an excellent reader of the game. He's an essential part of that formation, and he's you know downright just an excellent player. Um, so it's kind of unfortunate that perhaps Carlo Ancelotti's season will be deemed somewhat of a failure since he won't get past this stage of the Champions League uh, based on the fact that Javi Martinez got a red card, but I'm expecting um, quite a few goals in this game, but Real still to go through. Interesting stuff. Uh, Chris, on the Wednesday, of course, there are some more fascinating games. Uh, Let's start with the one which is maybe the more controversial of the two. Uh, Oh, Actually, well, yeah, but for different reasons. Uh, Monaco host Borussia Dortmund. Some people, again, calling for this game um, to be at least postponed until a later date. Uh, other people saying the competition must go on for a number of reasons. Um, it, 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 as hard as it was in the first leg, uh, Dortmund still find themselves very much in this. Mm. I, th- I think they do. And, and that's partly because if we look at Monaco's performance in the, the knockout rounds so far, they do concede goals as much as they score them. And and even in that first leg, there was a few chances I think that that, Mon- uh, that Dortmund, excuse me, could and, and possibly should have put away. So it, it's a situation where, yes, they present a very daunting attacking prospect, Monaco, and Mbappe arguably typifies that. Defensively, though, they haven't been as strong. And and you look at their performance in the game this weekend, it really wasn't vintage. And so. I think it's very probable that if you catch them at the right time and you exploit the space they will, I think, leave in behind those fullbacks, then it's it's very much a winnable tie for for Dortmund. Because, look, this is the thing, the last round, they were very close to going out against Manchester City. It was not as cut and dry as, as perhaps people would like to convince themselves. Yeah, very good point. Um, and then, of course, we finish... Dave on Barcelona at home to Juventus. The ultimate comeback, two matches in a row, or or two ties in a row, uh, could be on here. Uh, We find, though, that Barcelona are 3-0 down. They are, but they were were 2-0 down to another Allegri side, the uh, AC Milan side of 2013. Barcelona won that second leg 4-0. You know, you can expect Barcelona to do the same thing. This system, if they can get it right, this three at the back, uh, you know, pretty much a five in midfield with Messi and uh, Suarez up top. If they get it right, they'll beat this Juventus team and it's going to be a fascinating tie, a real fascinating tie to see if Allegri can do enough in the first few minutes and not do what PSG did and go within themselves and, and let this Barcelona team dominate. It's a much, the first, much more like, experienced team though, isn't it, this Juventus side? I mean, much better at game management, much better at um, It isn't, isn't. You, know, you, you, de- uh, you saw what they did um, the last time they got to the Champions League final. Very, very good at game management. But they got beaten that final by the same Barcelona team by these same Barcelona players. Messi, Neymar, Suarez were playing. Busquets, um, Iniesta, Rakitic were playing. Pique was playing. Mascarano was playing. There's a lot of similar players in there. It's like, this is a massive mental test for Allegri's management style and, of course, these Juventus players. And it's going to be fascinating to see how they, um, you know, 
how they play against this Barcelona team, how they sort of lay themselves out. Are they going to play the classic 4-4-2 defensive shape they're playing or are they going to drop back to a three at the back? It's it's going to be a brilliant game. Am I right in thinking, Dave, that there's a possibility that Paolo Dybala could be out for this one considering he was taken off with an ankle injury um, and what is now being reported as a sprained ankle by most people, uh, which, which could be difficult because actually he was a huge part of what uh, earned them this 3-0 lead in the first leg. It was big, very clinical on the counter attack, linked the play very, very well, received the ball in the right areas, drifted from number 10 out wide. But he, he is one part of this Juventus team. If he's out, it's going to be a massive blow. But it could be a good option to just leave Gonzalo Higuain up top of, on his own and, and pack the midfield with midfield runners, the likes of Geraro, the likes of Lamina, you know, players that like to do work, players that like to tackle. Maybe that's a better fit against Barcelona right now than playing someone like Dybala in attacking midfield just for this second leg they've all, they're already 3-0 up they just need to defend for 90 minutes and it's simple as that so maybe packing it with more defenders early doors could be a good option for Allegri yeah certainly is an interesting one uh, they started a, I think an almost completely different back line on the weekend uh, Regani and Barzagli um, starting obviously uh, that, that meant that Chiellini uh, Benatia Alexandro and Dani Alves uh, all didn't play Juventus on the weekend um, and then Storaro was the one who came on for uh, Paolo Dybala in the end it's a fascinating one uh, Iguain of course marches on he finds himself uh, on a great haul for the first season uh, fantastic stuff for Gonzalo and Juventus who find themselves at the top by eight points uh, away from Roma who are the nearest challengers um, Dave do, do you seriously expect that uh, Barcelona will go through in this one? I, I kind of want them to do. I want them to go through. Do you, I, kind why, of, Dave? I kind of like. I love what they did against PSG. I loved how they changed that tie around. And tactically, they were fantastic in that second leg. Terrible in the first leg. It's sort of like a, a performance of two faces in a way, showing the ugly side of Barca, but then showing the beautiful side of Barca. And I kind of want to see that again. I want to see what Allegri does when he's two goals down. Imagine that, right? So. The first leg was obviously 3-0. Imagine Barca get a two-goal lead. What does Allegri do? What does Allegri do at 0-0? You know, it's going to be fascinating. And I'd just like to see, you know, I just love Lionel Messi. Lionel Messi's a fantastic, the best footballer we'll ever see in our lifetimes. I just want to see him win more titles where he deserves it when Manchester United aren't in the Champions League. It's just a fun thing. It really is a fun thing. I've also called, you know, called Juve at the start of the season of being the dark horses. Weren't really regarded as the dark horses by anybody, but they've now become that and now they are that. It's one of these things where I like both of these sides and whoever goes through, I will support them to the final. It's very committed for someone who wasn't asked for that commitment, but that's fantastic stuff. Uh, Chris, elsewhere, uh, obviously on the weekend, uh, Englishmen travel well. Uh, and while we finish in Spain, let's go to Granada. Not literally, though it is a lovely place to go. Um, Tony Adams is having great fun over there. A lot of people mocking uh, his training methods uh, his, his training ground routine, as some people call it, uh, was mocked on uh, Soccer AM, uh, a show which maybe is about the equivalent relevance of Tony Adams to the modern game. Um, what's going on out there? Because Adams finds himself in an increasingly difficult position with a side who lost 3 0 on the weekend. He hasn't tried to dress it up, though. He sees himself as an interim boss. He's only there until the end of the season. And, you know, I, th- I thought for the first so 25 minutes, 28 minutes, that they were 
not too bad actually. Granada they, they held the ball relatively okay, stifled uh, Celta Vigo a little bit. First went in, second went in. I think in the second half, and then by the time the third went in, I think they'd had the, the stuffing knocked out of them. And look, I, I think people were pretty convinced that Granada were in a lot of trouble before Adams even arrived. So I don't think they were expecting some dramatic turnaround. Um, he's a curious character because as a player, you have the utmost respect for what he did and what he achieved with Arsenal as, as possibly their greatest ever captain in the modern era. But as a coach, he's, he's I think, come across as quite aloof. Um, maybe a, a little bit lacking in, in the understanding of, of the entire team. The one thing I thought about is Granada's side very early on was defensively, at least from the back four, they looked quite strong, actually. They looked quite organised. The line was quite good. The space between the lines actually was was relatively impressive. Um, but it, it was more a case of the attacking uh, elements that I think let them down. They had some decent chances in the second half that if they'd put, I think, one of them away just before that second goal goes in, it's a, it's a very different game. Um Saying all that, I'd be amazed if they stay up. But it's it's such a hodgepodge team. The the mark of the Potsos is still there. I think it was sixteen players I counted that that are on loan from other clubs. And when you you build a squad under that sort of situation, it's nigh impossible, I think, to have any kind of stability or success because everyone knows or believes at least that they're leaving at the end of the season. Very good point. Um... Now, Chris, take us down to the championship for just a minute. Uh, Brighton go up, obviously, um, and Newcastle were frustrated, but Huddersfield were also frustrated. Yes, so we'll, we'll start at the top with, with Brighton, who are in the Premier League now for the first time ever. That was confirmed with the, the final result of the day, which was Huddersfield drawing at Derby. Um, They've, they've been very consistent, Brighton. I don't think they've been the most exciting team to watch. Um, I actually don't think they have the best individual players of the, the league either. I think Chris Wood is a, a more consistent and more of a game-changer, actually, than the knock or, or Glenn Murray has, has turned out to be because I don't think Leeds are anywhere near that, that picture without Wood in the team. And yet they've been able to, to grind out results. They've had a fair bit of luck. Um, I, I can't deny that. I haven't watched most of their games. Sort of questionable penalty decisions here and there. Glenn Murray being quite clever in the box. Thing, things of that nature. But I think you have to give a lot of credit to, to Chris Hewton because they could have crumbled last year. And I think actually the togetherness they showed was something that they fostered last season and carried with them as a, as a sort of momentum into this, this new season. Um, and while they weren't the greatest against their rivals near the top, um, they were beaten by Huddersfield, beaten both home and away by Newcastle. They did manage to consistently pick up points from the, the lesser teams. Um, and I think that's what's what served the most is, is their consistency week to week has, has carried them to the top of the league. And I think will ultimately take them to the title. Um, closely behind them is Newcastle, who put in a shambolic performance against Ipswich which just outdone from start to finish um, and and they've now got three games left two at home against Preston and Bright, uh, Preston and Barnsley excuse me and then one at Cardiff 
there's a lot of different permutations here. So the Derby Huddersfield result, Huddersfield went up very early on, and if they'd won that, they would have been just five points behind Newcastle with a game in hand and then three to play each respective team. That draw means they're now seven behind with a game to play. And if they don't manage to win against Fulham on Saturday, Newcastle could theoretically be promoted Monday night when they face Preston at home. Um, but at this point, it's, it's a situation that's been the same for Newcastle. It's, it's been in their own hands, but they've just consistently choked. You look at Good Friday, they gave up a goal in the final 10 seconds against Leeds. And then today, they just didn't show up for to a man. John Joe Shelby again, very meek. Um, really not the kind of midfielder that is supposedly the best in, in this league and I just think for Benitez now it's a case of getting them over the line because they have to go up and then really overacting a, an overhaul in the summer um, if they can get up then you've got the, the playoffs obviously looking at realistically Huddersfield, Reading I think Fulham might sneak in there and potentially Leeds of those teams I'd say Fulham play the best um, Huddersfield have been performing well above expectations undeniably but I think Fulham play the best football um, and they're the team that I've been most impressed with at the bottom you're looking at Wigan um, all but down really Rotherham already guaranteed of, of going down as well um, Notts Forest in a little bit of trouble which is a surprise um, given we, we look at their history and then uh, Blackburn Rovers take up the, the third relegation spot um, with three games to go. So there's still a lot to play for at the bottom if the, the top isn't um, isn't all but set because obviously Chef Wednesday are in fifth, Fulham sixth and then Leeds seventh. Very good point. Uh, well, it's been great to have you guys on tonight's show. Uh, anything you think we've missed from this weekend? We, we are going to go through the bottom teams uh, when we preview later in the week. Uh Anyone, anyone, any, any highlights that we don't think we put in there? I mean, I particularly enjoyed Jen and Shakiri's goal. Uh, and, you know, he seems to be doing well at Stoke. Um, the overhyping of, uh, of Ross Barkley and the misanalysis of him. Interesting stuff. Uh, that is that is interesting. Is that something we can discuss Tunnel in your vision. podcast? On? Tunnel vision. <laughs> yeah, we can, uh, we can do that, Lars. An English reference there from Dave. Uh, yeah, we, we will talk about the teams that are low down in the table later on in the week on the podcast. Adam will be back from Lisbon. Uh, he will, of course, be bringing much news of the Portuguese. God knows what. Uh, in the meantime, though, Nico, if people want to uh, find you, where can they find you? Find me on Twitter at Nico underscore O Morales or find me on Medium um, at, the same, at the same address. I like that. Dave, how about you? Well, I think you want to go on to iTunes, Stat Mandate Football Podcast, and just drop a little review. Something funny, something to entertain me, to get me through the week. Interesting stuff. Uh, Chris? At the front three. Excellent stuff. And, of course, uh, I'm exactly the same. Uh, you can find Adam at Adam Boltwood. Excellent stuff. Um, and we're looking forward to seeing you guys later in the week. Uh, there's plenty to come from the front three over the next few months. Uh, where we are getting videos back and up and running uh, real soon and everything that's going to go on on the website of course would be fantastic as well see you again real soon right here on tf3 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 